to the GBC Sermon Podcast from Gaimia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. This message from our Sunday church service is part of the resources we provide as we seek to see lives changed by Jesus. You could also listen to our Big Three podcast, a conversation that unpacks three big questions raised from sermons like this one. You can find more information about Gaimia Baptist Church as well as discipleship resources and an opportunity to join us in person or online on our website, gaimiabaptist.org.au. But as I said, at the outset of our service, uh, we are continuing our series, Good Job, the Restoration and Renewal of Vocation. And we have a special guest with us, Andrew Sloan, a colleague and friend of mine from Moreland College. I'm going to invite Andrew to join me on the platform. Uh, would you please welcome him as he does so? As I said, uh, Andrew drove down from Newcastle uh, this morning, so it's, uh, it's a big ask for him to be here this morning. But, uh, so I've used up all my friendship points, I'm pretty sure is how that works. Uh, but it's great to have you here. Give me lunch, it'll be all right. All right, lunch it is, too easy. Uh, Andrew, tell us a little bit about yourself, your family and whatnot. Sure. Uh, so um, I'm married to Alison. Uh, we've been married for, what year is it? <laughs> it's 2024. Okay, uh, so we've been married for 38 years. Uh, we have uh, three adult daughters. Um, uh, they're all married, one's in Brisbane, one's in Canberra, uh, one's in Sydney. Right. And now I've asked these, I asked these questions of Cara last week, uh, and I'm going to ask them of Scott again next week, so that kind of we have some comparative data. But um, what, what would you say is your vocation right now? How would you describe that? Uh, so my vocation is to help people come to grips with the Scriptures to understand their world in light of the Scriptures and the Scriptures in light of the world that they live in. Um, another way of putting it is um, I lecture in Bi- uh, Bible, so particularly Old Testament, and Christian thought at Morling College. So that's the bulk of it. That's uh, Andrew and I have met. We have many conversations about Old Testament passages, and we've been chatting a little bit about our series in One, Corinth, uh, One Chronicles, which I'm very excited about. Um, but I'll stop there, lest we digress too far. Digress? Digress. You? I know. Never thought of it. Um, so uh, what was it that then got you interested? I mean, you, you talk broadly about you know, wanting people to understand the world through the, the lens of Scripture and Scripture through the lens of the world. What was it that got you particularly interested in vocation and faith, like that, that kind of combination? So a couple of things. Um, so my initial training uh, was in medicine. Uh, so many, many years ago. Don't ask me anything about medicine. Um, that's a long time ago. Uh, So my initial training uh, was in medicine, and I think that throws up questions that... uh, I came to faith while I was studying medicine, and that throws up questions, I think, that anyone with half a brain needs to come to grips with. So that was just part of my earliest Christian experience. Um, The other thing was the church... uh, So I was converted when I was at uh, Uni of New South Wales through a local Baptist church, um, and there were lots of... There were some dodgy things about the church. It's a church like this one, so there are dodgy things. <laughs> Should I have not said that? Anyway, um, um, but there were some absolutely spectacular things about it, and one of them was that from the get-go, we were told that God gave a toss about everything that we do, and that our job was to live to God's glory in every aspect of life. So that was just how I've always thought about faith. Um, and I guess my brief experience in medicine and then um, being doing the theology thing for a while, that's only deepened it. Mm. 
I think one of the one of the things that I, like I've observed, I think across churches, particularly over the last four or five years, has been a, an increased emphasis on discipleship and yeah. what's often termed as kind of whole of life discipleship, yeah. where discipleship goes beyond what we do here or when we read our Bibles in the morning or pray or go to a life group, whatever it is. And so I think there's been a heightened interest in the church at large in kind of right. vocation and faith. As, as you've been thinking about it and teaching on it and lecturing and, and reading in the space, what are the sorts of things that have become particularly, I don't know, important to you? Are there themes that have drawn out, curiosities, areas of interest that you're really particularly fascinated in? Yeah, um, quite a number. Um, one, one obvious one, I'm, I'm um, technologically largely massively incompetent but I'm still really interested in the way that technology impacts the workplace and in surprising ways. Uh, so one of the things that's happened particularly in the last five years is that the kinds of revolutionary changes that uh, occurred for people in more manual labor are now hitting, if you like, the, the headspace labor. Um, so a whole lot of text-based stuff, things for early career lawyers, um, uh, people in communications, a whole lot of stuff that young people would have done to get their career started, to get a bit of experience of how to use words and the like, is now, can now be done by machines. And so a lot of those jobs are either going or changing so dramatically that people aren't getting the kinds of work experience that sets them up for later. And I find that both, well, interesting, I guess, but, but it's really, really struggling to think about how we, can, how we can help people who are entering those kinds of work environments both make sense of what it is they're going to be entering and get the kinds of experiences and um, wisdom, if you like, um, that otherwise would just come naturally. Yeah, I mean, I, I call AI, technology, all this yeah. sort of stuff is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. But one last question. So I've asked you to come and speak on the impact of sin on our yep. vocation. So Thank you. you're welcome. I figured, you know, how best to let my friend know I care about him by asking him to come and do that. Um, uh, you know, we've talked about uh, the, kind of the goodness of work in a couple of times and kind of hinted that we're going to spend some time talking about the ways in which brokenness of our mm. world affects our vocation. Why, why is it important to begin where we did with the goodness of creation and kind of while still coming to the impact of sin. Yeah, so um, lots of reasons. The two most obvious ones that come to my mind, uh, first of all, that's where the story starts and we want to tell the story truly, right? So you begin at the beginning, when you're telling a story, you begin at the beginning, you go through to the middle and then you get to the end and you stop. Um, so if you want to tell the story right, you start at the beginning. Um, Equally, I think particularly important is a, a lot of people, and I, I think you alluded to this in your first message, a lot of people have this weird sense that work itself is a curse or a judgment, something that is imposed on humanity because of human sinfulness. And that is just plain wrong. Work is a gift of the creator and it can become a gift of the Creator. Even though we're going to be talking about all the nasty stuff today, we need to remember that that's not where the story starts and nor is it where the story ends. Because part of what we will be coming to grips with is the way that the end of the story gives work back to us as a great gift of God. Would you thank Andrew? <laughs> Thanks, man.
Our Bible reading this morning comes from Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. Toil is meaningless. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. Would you join with me in prayer as um, after that happy beginning, we think about work some more. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that you, the living God, by your spirit makes your word live in us. And so we ask that you might do that. We ask that by your spirit and for the sake of our Lord Jesus, you might open your word to us and open us to your word, that your word might bear fruit in us and through us and around us for your glory. Amen. Some people seem to work in a garden. Quite frankly, I do. I get paid to do the work I enjoy most in the world. Well, except for marking and admin. <laughs> it's become a bit of a cliche now. But there's a famous quote now attributed to Mark Twain. Find a job you enjoy doing and you'll never have to work a day in your life. It, it, it fits some of us, at least some of the time. And if that's you, then have a little nap for the next <laughs> 30 minutes or so. Because what we're talking about won't have a lot of purchase on your life. But for the rest of us, well, some of us don't work in gardens. We work in the wilderness or perhaps the salt mines. Our days are filled with boring drudgery or dangerous, nasty work. You may find yourself tangled in the thorns, lacerated by the thistles, stuck making bricks without straw. Today, as we continue to explore what the scriptures have to say about our vocation in the world, I want us together to come clean. 
For we need to be clear-eyed about the realities of work, not starry-eyed idealists. Or we'll set ourselves up for cynicism, failure, maybe even despair. And so as Marcus said, today we are acknowledging the reality of brokenness. But as we do that, it's important for us to, to get a kind of meta-message, if that makes sense. It will, in a moment. The scriptures don't shy away from those realities. And that, I think, is important. And it's important for us to see the ways in which the scriptures bring us into those realities before we think about the possibility of hope, even redemption. Because that, the reality of brokenness and how Scripture speaks to it is one of the ways that the light of the gospel might shine in dark places, even dark workplaces. And so, my job this morning, thanks, Mark, is to remind you that work sucks. Because <laughs> you need me to do that, don't you? Actually, it's just a little bit more interesting than that, and perhaps fractionally less depressing. My job this morning is to help you see that when you find your labors breaking your back or sucking your soul dry, Scripture gets you. God gets you. See, our scriptures don't live in some unrealistic ideal world in which all of our labors are blessed to be a blessing. The brokenness of our efforts is not foreign to God. We're not left alone to figure it out and fend for ourselves. For in our Bibles, we find stories that make sense to us and help us make sense of the world of vocation. So let me start in perhaps the most obvious place. Not yet the text that was read. Thanks very much, Jerry, for reading it so clearly, so powerfully. This is a text I think if you're familiar with your Bible at all, you'll be very familiar with. If you're not, there it is. Have a look at it. I don't need to read it to you, I don't think. We're familiar with this. Genesis 3 speaks of literal thorns and, and, and metaphorical ones, the, the, the ordinary hardships and dangers of work. Now, it, it, it is important to remember that this is not the first or last word that the scriptures speak about work, and, and Mark really helpfully took you through that a couple of weeks ago. But it's also important to see that it's there pretty much at the start, not the first thing, but it's there pretty early, isn't it? And this passage shapes the world that the scriptures now unfold for us, including the world of vocation. Now, it's also worth remembering that for, for most of the first hearers, this was their reality, their literal experience, because most of the first hearers of the scriptures were farmers whose job was to scratch out a living from the hard and often unyielding dirt. They pulled up weeds, which are often come equipped with thorns, do they not? It's part of what makes them weeds. 
They had to clear their fields of the stones. They had to plant their crops. And their sweat was one of the things that watered it. That's not the reality for most of us. Well, not most people in Sydney, unless perhaps you work in maintenance or in construction, where that kind of hard, painful, sweaty work is just your reality. That's not, that's not my kind of reality. It's not literal thorns and thistles. The sweat of my brow generally does not drip onto my computer keyboard. But metaphorical thorns and thistles are all too familiar to us. So is the sweat of hard labor. For me, much as my job is, I think, the best job in the world, it, it has its thorns and thistles. And for me, one of them, this is a fairly trivial thing to be fair, but one of them is my, what seems to be, self-filling inbox. It's kind of like the cursed version of the old Tim Tam ad. You remember with the tray, you empty it and then it fills up again with these lovely, delicious brown colored things. Well, my inbox filled up, fills up, it seems, with brown colored things, not quite so nice. <laughs> and it seems to happen automatically. That's the reality. Even the best of jobs has its thorns and thistles, admin, marking. I think we would agree. Uh, my wife, Alison, puts it fairly evocatively. She's a nurse, so evocatively and, shall we say, plainly. The way she puts it is this, every job has its bedpans. True? I want you to spend just a moment thinking about your tomorrow or the next day and think about your bedpans, your thorns and thistles, wherever you will find yourself in the world. Just spend a moment thinking about that. That's our reality. That's the reality the scriptures speak to. But equally, word, work is not just hard labor. It can also be incredibly frustrating, can't it? That's what Ecclesiastes speaks of. Frustrating, elusive, even futile work. That's a passage that we had read for us earlier. It's a puzzling passage. It's an unsettling passage. And I think that's part of the point. Ecclesiastes is a gift to us to, to unsettle us. I think that's a good gift. Again, I don't need to read this to you again, but I, I do want to notice want you to notice something. I'm going to go a bit Bible nerd for a moment, so, so bear with me. The word that the NIV translates meaningless is actually hevel. And I took the liberty of putting the transliterated Hebrew up there. All of it is hevel. This is one of those, it's a, it's a fabulous word, but it's a, re, it's a really hard word to come to grips with in Hebrew. It kind of is what it means, because hevel, it means something metaphorical, but it also speaks literally of breath, of vapor. We don't get many cold mornings in this part of the world, but every so often you get a nice, crisp, 
winter morning. You go outside and you breathe out, and there's that, that mist. You can see it in the background of the slide if you look very carefully. That, that's Hevel. And that, too, is the reality of our labour. For many of us, that's a daily reality. It feels like at the end of the day, all our labour has sunk into the sand or perhaps drained into the swamp. Some of you may now or have in the past worked in the home as, as homemakers, I think is a traditional term, and you are very familiar with this. No tidy room survives first contact with a toddler <laughs> or a teenager. Yep. But it's true for all vocations. You may spend hours working up a bid for a contract. Nothing comes of it. You work out a detailed marketing plan, and they say, we've decided to go in a different direction. You spend hours counseling a gambling addict, only to see them back at the pokies the next day. All our labor, and at the end of the day, what do we have to, to, to hold on to? Think about your tomorrow. Where do you think you might find Hevel at work, this fleeting, frustrating reality that work seems to come to nothing? Actually, just to make you feel better, this is a reality for all of us in the end. We need to recognize that even when it seems as though our work bears good fruit, given the inevitable erosion of all our efforts by the forces of history, everything we do in the end will vanish. I'm an academic. I can't imagine that someone might do this, but the kind of things that sometimes outlasts the life of an academic is a, is a library or something named after you. I don't think anyone would do that for me. But even if they did, this is Sydney. How many days will it be before a property developer comes through and raises a lot of it? Or, if you're an eternal optimist like I am, before climate change floods it. Or AI renders books irrelevant. One day we retire, or perhaps die in harness and pass our work onto some fool or other. Hell. The news just gets better. Again, uh, let me take you to another bit of the scriptures that will be familiar to you. The, the, the idea of working, you know, you, I've used it before, already this morning, laboring, with bri making bricks without straw. You, that, that comes from the Exodus story, right? And you're familiar, again, with this story. 
that Israel finds itself in Egypt, where they went initially as a place of refuge, and it's turned into a place of bondage and hard labor and oppression and even violence. And they have been conscripted into the massive building project of this empire that they are trapped in. And it is unremitting, relentless, back-breaking work. And they cry out to God in their distress, and God sends them someone to help. And it goes really well. The first response, when God sends Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, he says, you're a bunch of lazy sods. You know the answer to this? I'm going to make you work harder. Yep. You have to gather the, all the raw materials for yourselves and still build as much of my stuff. Thanks, Moses. But that's reality, isn't it? The reality is that some of us find ourselves in back-breaking oppressive, brutal work environments. And it seems as though our efforts to do something about it come to nothing or worse. We also need to remember where the story goes. For God knows, God hears precisely in the midst of back-breaking labor. As for them, so for us. Now, 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 to be fair, it's unlikely that you'll see plagues of blood and locusts fall on your horrible boss, much as you might like it. But know this. If this is where you find yourself in your vocation, God knows, God hears precisely in the midst of your back-breaking labor. But let me move on. And, and this might be uh, uh, just a little bit surprising. I, I want to take you to one of Jesus' parables. It's a parable of the workers in the vineyard. Again, it's, it may be familiar to, to many of you. The, the, the story is of someone who's looking for laborers to harvest his grapes. And if you know anything about the grape harvest, and we all should, um, you know that it's very, very time sensitive. Yep, the grapes are ripe when they're ripe, and if you leave them a couple of days too long, they're gone. Yep. So you've got to get them, got to get them in and into the wine press as soon as you can. And so that's, that's what lies behind this, right? Now, the, the, the owner of the vineyard doesn't have a huge workforce just hanging around waiting for the few days of harvest. The social circumstances were these. There are a bunch of people who were day laborers. Yep. So they didn't have a steady job. What they did was wait in the marketplace for someone to give them some work so that they could get their day's wage. Yep. That's the reality that lies behind this parable. It's interesting, isn't it? Now, now let me be clear. 
This is a, a parable about the kingdom. It, its primary purpose is to help people like me blow in Gentiles, latecomers to the party, to recognize that we are on an equal footing with the Jews. Actually, its primary point is to remind the Jews who'd been there working all day long that blow in Gentiles, Gentiles like me are equally welcome. But notice what it assumes. It assumes this reality of precarious work. Now, that's, that's a reality which many people in our world are very familiar with. There are still literal marketplaces, squares in the city, where men generally line up, hoping, waiting, longing for work, even hard work, so that they might get enough to feed their, themselves and their families that day. A colleague of mine spent some time in the Middle East, and he said he had a friend who was moving house. And what he did was went to one street where all the moving trucks were, said, I'll take you. And the driver, driver went round a couple of streets to the square, and there are dozens of blokes. And he said, I need two people. About 12 th threw themselves into the back of the truck, and he got rid of the ones he didn't want. That's what Jesus is talking about. Do you see? The interesting thing is the way that just using that reality dignifies precarious work. Do you see that? The very stories that Jesus tells give us insight into the things that matter to him. Now, most of us don't, don't have real experience of that kind of day laborer, but our economy is increasingly a gig economy. Are you familiar with that term? where it's short-term contracts. Even in uh, tertiary education, there's a lot of short-term contracts. Or people who are food delivery drivers, yeah? It, their work is precarious work. They do not know when or if they will get another day's work. Casual workers in the supermarkets packing shelves. The term that's come to be used for that is the precariat. Not the proletariat, those who have work, oppressive though it may be, but the precariat, those who don't know whether they have. I don't know if that's part of your experience of work. It's an increasingly part of the experience of people in our economy. Jesus' parable tells us that God is aware of those kinds of work circumstances and they matter. They matter enough to be the basis for one of his most important parables. Experiences like that are not alien to Scripture or to the God we worship. There's a, a whole lot more I could say about the brokenness of work, the way that sin, both personal and structural sin, affects our workplaces and our everyday vocation, whether that's paid or not. Talk about the temptation to invest ourselves and our identities in our work. We talk about the way that idolatrous greed governs so much of our economy and colonizes our imaginations. But I expect you're familiar with what the scriptures have to say about that. So I'd like, I'd like to take us somewhere darker. An aspect of work that, and um, this is a serious warning, 
an aspect of work that might actually be triggering for some of you. I want you to, to think about the experience, not just of back-breaking work, but of unsafe work. For many people, their experience of work is not safe. They experience sexual harassment or even sexual violence, and this is a reality. And it's a reality which is reflected for us in this story. This is a story of Ruth. I seem to recall Mark preached on Ruth a little while ago. Uh, great, great story. So some of you will be familiar with it. Let me just remind you. So um, uh, Naomi is a, uh, a Jewish woman who lives in Bethlehem, and there's a famine in the region. Now, there's no social security, uh, and so people just have to try and find food wherever they can. Clearly, their fields have failed, so they have to go elsewhere. So they, so they go to Moab, which is just across the Jordan River. And while she's there, uh, she, she and her husband, she has a couple of sons, husband dies, the sons marry Moabite women, and then they die. So the story's going really well, right? And then she hears that Bethlehem, her hometown, uh, which is a, word, it's a, it's a name which, whether it originally means house of bread in Hebrew, it sounds very, very, very much like house of bread, a bit ironic given the story, but they have heard that God has provided now bread in the house of bread. And so they decide to go back. And Ruth, one of her two daughters-in-law, comes back. When they come back, they're trying to find food, okay? Now remember, this is a farming community, and the way you find food is you grow it for yourself, or you find someone else who's grown it, and you get some of their stuff. And what she does is she goes out gleaning. Yep, that's what this is talking about. Now gleaning is where harvest time comes, and the law actually said you harvest your fields, you kind of do all the neat bits, but there are always straggly bits around the edge. Don't get all obsessive. This is a rough paraphrase. Don't get all obsessive in your harvest. Leave those rough, daggy edges for those who don't have their own land. The poor, the widow, the alien, the sojourners, that they can harvest it and provide food for themselves out of what God has blessed you with. Yep, that's what... Ruth comes to do. Now, when she's in Boaz's field, he says this. My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting. Follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars. The men have filled and she doesn't. It's a great day's work. She comes back with a, a bucket full of stuff. And Naomi's really pleased and says to her, it would be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. Think, oh? So here's the deal. This story is set in the days of the judges. Now, in our English Bibles, Ruth immediately follows on from the book of Judges. And if you know the book of Judges, it ends 
horribly with one of the worst stories I have ever read, let alone in the Scriptures, a story of multiplied violence and rape and sexual violence. And this is Israel at the time. Why do you think, she says, don't go somewhere else? Because this is a work environment which is unsafe everywhere else. This is a work environment where she might be at risk of sexual harassment or even sexual violence. For some of you, this is all too close to home. According to Respect at Work, one in three people in the workforce have experienced sexual harassment at work in the last five years. Almost 40% of women and just over 25% of men. So looking around, there's a pretty good chance that someone here has experienced this. That's, that's horrific. It's, and I have to say, it's, an, it, it's alien to me. I've not experienced that. But it isn't alien to the scriptures or the God who gave them to us. This is absolutely not something to put up with. So please, if this has been your experience and you've, and you've not talked about it with anyone, you haven't felt that this is something that you can even air in a place like this, please make time to talk to Mark or someone else you trust, one of the team here. For like Boaz... God is on your side and wants yours to be a safe workplace. Truly, work can be a dark and dangerous place. But as we can see in many of these passages, if we look carefully enough, the scriptures shed light into that darkness even as they help us to see its reality. Anything? You know, I think the fact that the scriptures are so clear-eyed about all of this, it brings the realities of the darkness and brokenness of work into the light, into the light of the gospel, in fact. The fact that Jesus refers to those realities so explicitly in his parables invests even the most precarious of work with surprising dignity. As is the fact that, from what we can tell, Jesus himself spent a large chunk of his life engaged in the ordinary work of a carpenter or builder. And I can tell you that in first century Palestine, that was hard, frustrating, and often dangerous work, frequently at the mercy of rich employers or even Roman government contractors in Tiberias or Sephorus. Jesus, our Saviour, the one we worship, personally experienced the thorns and thistles and splinters and blisters of back-breaking labour. He knew the frustration of hevel, the brutal reality of making bricks without straw. Here's where the Gospel brings light into even the darkest of workplaces. The God we worship doesn't stand at a safe distance from the bedpans. 
God, the incarnate Son, inhabited the world, inhabited the darkness of broken work. He gets it. But he also guarantees, and let me finish with this, he guarantees and embodies in his resurrection how our story and the story of our work ends. And it ends gloriously. You see that in 1 Corinthians 15, one of my favorite bits of scripture. It reminds us that in light of Jesus' resurrection, our labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not empty. It, it implicitly picks up those frustrating realities of Ecclesiastes, even though a different word is used, and negates it. But do notice this. It is in the Lord that our labor is not in vain. Not in its own right, but precisely because the fleeting perishable stuff of this world order will be transformed into the final imperishable glorious new creation we see enfleshed in the risen Lord Jesus and so we also look towards the new Jerusalem in which the story of our work even the works of our hands will be honored redeemed and transformed as if you see there as the kings of the earth bring their glory into the heavenly city. And given the way that sacrificial service is honored by the Lord Jesus, I suspect that there'll be a fair bit more ordinary drudgery captured by that glory than we might imagine. This this is how our story ends. We're not there yet. So what do we do tomorrow and the next tomorrow as we face the reality of work with eyes opened to the brokenness and darkness? Well, the first thing I want to suggest is that you... This is going to sound a bit Sunday school, too bad. Read your Bible. But read all of it and read it carefully. Notice the way that it picks up on the ordinary, everyday realities of life and dignifies them by being there in the very word of God. But also recognize that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our workplaces. Slight paraphrase who knows the thorns and thistles and frustrations of work from the inside. This is the one to whom and through whom we pray. And remember that many of those prayers uh, that we find in Scripture, the prayers that are given to us, are prayers of lament. Because for many of us, there is stuff all we can do about the circumstances we find ourselves in. We have no power to change the workplaces we have to endure but we can cry out to the God of the universe who knows us and who loves us and who hears our cries, and we can pray that the God of justice might bring justice. Sometimes we see that now. Always we hope for it in the end. But some of you and this is perhaps even a harder word, some of you find yourselves with hands on the levers of power in your workplace. 
What do you do with them? It may be that you need to give a bit of thought to the ways in which you are part of and contribute to the brokenness of the system in which you work. That perhaps there's stuff that you can and should do to make yours a safe rather than an unsafe workplace. There's stuff that you can do to make the, to enable people's work to be more fruitful rather than frustrating. It may be that one of the things you need to do is to give some serious thought to that, maybe even repent, and to ask the God who cares about all those workers how you might use the power that's been entrusted to you, and perhaps even how you might be a Boaz to a Ruth in a potentially unsafe work environment. But for all of us, the last thing, and here I end, we can and must anticipate the day when we will be surprised at what God claims from our work. Those things we never even considered of worth or value that God takes and uses to adorn the heavenly city. The day when you hear the Lord say, good job. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast. We hope you found inspiration and encouragement and God used this message to speak to you. If you want to connect more with GBC, you can follow us on social media or contact us via our website. You can also get to know some of the people from our church community through the We Are The Church podcast. Real stories of real people sharing how Jesus has shaped and transformed their life. We pray you experience the transforming power of Jesus in your life and pray that God blesses you today. Thank you.